All right, welcome back to the Lindroth Hockey Podcast, episode 81. We're a partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions. We are here with co-host father and son duo today, Andrew Jim Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing? Doing great, Andrew. It's been a few weeks since we've had a guest on. We've been on a little hiatus. Uh, I can't wait for this guest. Give us the introduction, please. Yeah, so today we have with us Stephen Wheedler, who professionally... Uh, he did play in D3 hockey and later professionally played a few years in the Southern Professional Hockey League. But he's known for being an assistant coach in multiple organizations, starting in Curry College, then played for, I believe it was the um, American International College for several years, the uh, assistant coach and then later the associate head coach. And then, of course, the past few years and what he's currently doing now, he's the assistant coach at the University of Vermont. And also we'll talk a little bit uh, as well, but he also was the assistant coach for the under 20 uh, Norway international team. So without us, uh, any other introductions today, we have with us Stephen Wheatler today. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited to be on. Yeah, so starting uh, with the professional career, so you did start uh, playing uh, in college. So before you had committed to college and everything, what you led to your decision to go into the school that you did because you did, I believe, switch schools at one point um, yeah. in the beginning. And so kind of give us the story and background there. Uh, so I'm, a, I'm from Long Island, New York, originally. Um, grew up playing there, double-A uh, hockey all through my high school years. Um, after high school ended, I got an opportunity to go play junior hockey, uh, in Hudson Valley in the old uh, Atlantic Junior League uh, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, played there for three years. Um, ended up getting recruited to Elmira College. Absolutely loved Elmira. Um, it was a great time. We had a really good team. My freshman year, we went to the Final Four uh, of the NCAA Championship uh, for Division Three, And that was a great experience. Um, I didn't get a ton of playing time. Uh, I actually didn't play any games as a freshman. Uh, which got pretty old uh, sitting in the stands with my suit on every night. Um, and there was a coaching change from uh, when I got recruited there to who was the head coach when I got there as a freshman. And that's a tough scenario. Uh, Aaron Saul had left to take the head coaching job at Potsdam. Uh, and then he came back after I transferred. He's now the head coach at Elmira still. Um, but in that window, um, I ended up uh, not playing a ton at Elmira and transferring to the University of Southern Maine. Uh, and I played three years there for Jeff Beanie. I uh, was captain my senior year. And, and like you guys said, I got to play uh, a little bit of uh, minor league hockey in the Southern Professional after that. So uh, I got real lucky along the way there to have um, get stuck in a, in a unique and, and tough scenario in Elmira, but have Jeff Beanie give me the chance uh, or a second chance uh, to play college hockey. And, and it worked out for me. Talk a little bit about your experience in the SPHL. Oh, I played in Knoxville. So I started out in, in Reading uh, in the ECHL. Uh, I was there for training camp for all of a, a day um, and I ended up getting cut. Um, and uh, when I went into the office, uh, they mentioned that uh, team in Knoxville had been looking for me. I didn't really have a backup plan at the time. I kind of put uh, all my eggs in one basket to try and play professional hockey. Um, and the coach in Knoxville had been recruiting me since my season ended. Uh, at Southern Maine. Uh, so I figured, you know what? I've heard great things about it. I like Mike Cragen from all the talks that I had. That was the head coach at the time in Knoxville. I'm going to go down and check it out. And uh, it was a great experience. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough life. You're on the bus all the time, uh, long travel hours. Uh, but Knoxville is a great city. Uh, they got an unreal fan base there, which made it a lot of fun. Uh, you're kind of a, a big fish in a small pond. Uh, down there playing for the Ice Bears. And uh, yeah, I absolutely loved it. I went back for a second year. And um, after that, I, I ended up moving into coaching. But my time in Knoxville was great. I had made guys like long, lifelong friends that I'm still friends with. Some guys that got into coaching after we were done playing uh, that I'm still very tight with. And um, so, yeah, I got everything I could out of Knoxville. It was, it was a great experience. Yeah. So after two years in the Southern Professional League, then you did go on to coaching. So um, what kind of led to the decision of coaching? Was it always something that you had in mind? And how did you get the hookup? Because, you know, I assume it's it's pretty rare that you go and start, you know, coaching directly at, at a college, right? Yeah. I, so 
I always had the idea that I wanted to coach. Uh, the goal, obviously, as a player is always to make it to the NHL. I think that's every kid's dream. Uh, I never had the talent for that. Um, you know, after a year in, in the SBHL, you kind of realize, like, you know, the dream's kind of fading a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, my wife now was my girlfriend at the time. Uh, she was going to grad school at Northeastern in Boston. Um, I was actually up in Boston visiting her and training with a friend, uh, John Lounsbury, who's a very good trainer up in that area, uh, works with Adam Oates. And John, while training me, uh, we were just having conversations. And he asked me, you know, didn't you always want to get into coaching? And I said, yeah. Um, and he said that there were uh, some openings in the Boston area, which obviously would make sense with, with my wife, Megan, being there, uh, going to school still. Um, and he said he knew TJ Manisterski at Curry College was looking for an assistant. Uh, his assistant, Ryan Rosowski, had just left for the pros. Um, would I be interested? And I said, you know what? I'm planning to go back and play in Knoxville again, but I think this is something I always wanted to do. Let, let, if you could get me in for an interview, like I'd love to go for an interview. And uh, I, we talk about it all the time, me and TJ. After that first interview, it was it kind of just clicked. And I kind of knew, you know, my life was going one direction with my girlfriend at the time. And also on the other side, I wanted to get into coaching. After meeting with TJ and learning more about what he did, um, and that interview process, just the, the kind of connection that we had. He was somebody that I wanted to learn from and work for. Um, so I made the decision to switch. Uh, TJ offered me the job, I think, two days after the first interview. Um, and, and I was off and running into coaching. So it's, it's a little, uh, not odd, but it, it's um, kind of unique where you started your professional career as a player and then quickly moving to the coaching. So... I know a lot of players, they're passionate about playing. They just want to play, play, play. But with you, it seems the goal has always been my passion is hockey. And kind of like any organization, you're already thinking, like you said, maybe you're you're kind of going, where's my playing career going to go? But you were just like, hey, I need to start moving up and up and up. Is that with kind of your mindset there? Or was there a disappointment that you weren't going to play or you didn't think you were going to play more? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the reality of it is that uh, there was a life side to it too, right? Like me and me and Megan were very serious. Uh, obviously uh, knew she was the one I had gotten an offer that summer to go play in Italy uh, in their pro league, which I thought was going to be an unbelievable experience. And Megan uh, obviously just started grad school at Northeastern. So that's like, I can't do that. Right. I don't, I don't want to do that. And then it was all my other options to go back to Knoxville again. I already know what that is. I played two years there. I didn't get called up at all. Um, I'm never a point producing guy. So I don't think I'm going to get called up in my third year. So really where's that going? And then just John Lounsbury getting me that, that foot in the door, and the connection I had with TJ, it just made it seamless for me. It was almost like not even um, something to consider. Like it was time to go into coaching and see if I really liked that. And again, I couldn't ever picture my life without hockey. So this was a foot in the door to make sure that my life was in hockey uh, as long as I was able to, you know, grow my, co my coaching career. So bring us through now. Um through your coaching career up to your present at University of Vermont? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I guess the snapshot version is it's two years with TJ. Um, and, and the greatest thing about TJ was, I'll never forget my first day at Curry. I, I walked, he was just moving into his house. Uh, he bought a house right outside of Boston. And I walked in the first day, um, in D3, you wear every hat there is. There's no equipment guy. There's no, uh, you know, there's no anything, any staff. It's you and the head coach. Uh, so you wear a ton of different hats. I walked in and he was like, here's everything that you have to do from equipment to this, to this, to this. Have at it. And it was like right into the fire, figure it out. Hey, players show up on campus in a week. Like have at it and figure it out. It's got to all be done. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
Um, so that was the greatest part about those two years with TJ was I just got to learn everything. And he gave me freedom and, and reign to figure it out on my own and mess up a little bit um, and then guide me along and teach me how to do it. Um, so after two years with him, I did feel like I had a firm grasp on what coaching was at the college level. I also got the experience to do a ton of different things because I was at the D3 level over those two years. Um, and going into that summer, you know, you start to look for how can you grow your coaching career? You always want to get to D1. I didn't get there as a player. I definitely wanted to get there as a coach. Um, and similar to anything else, you start looking for opportunities. And an opportunity popped up uh, at American International College with uh, then head coach Gary Wright. And it just turned out that Gary Wright's graduate assistant at the time was Mike Towns, who was a teammate of mine when I was in Knoxville. So I reached out to Mike and just asked him, you know, what are, you know, do I have a chance at this job? What's this and that? And Mike, obviously, without him, I would have never got that job. He gave me the inside track. He gave me the ins and outs of what AIC was. Um, and it really helped me through the interview process to have all that background information. Um, so I get the job with Gary. And throughout that year, you know, when I got there, and Mike would say the same thing, when we got there, you know, that program was, was the worst in the country. It was a perennial doormat program. Um, and it was our job to try and rebuild that thing. And with Gary that year, it was a lot of learning how to do more with less. Uh, Gary's greatest strength is you're not allowed to say no. You have to find a way to yes. Um, <laughs> okay. Every, every time. And, you know, when Gary first kind of smacks you with that and presents that challenge to you um, without the resources that the bigger programs have, uh, it's a little scary. You got to figure out how to do it. But that's something that I took from that year with Gary that was, that'll stick with me forever. Just finding a way to do more with less, um, finding a way to yes, all those kind of challenges that come from a small school. Gary steps down after 32 years as the head coach at AIC after my first year and AIC hires Eric Lang to come in. Um, I'm in a little bit of a tumultuous situation, not knowing if Eric's going to retain me or not. Mm -hmm. um, and to my benefit or my luck, Eric does uh, end up keeping me on. And uh, yeah, you know, the three of us between uh, Eric, Mike and, and myself, were able to rebuild that program from 60th in the country to where it is now. They just got done where winning their fourth championship in a row in Atlantic hockey um, and went back to the tournament again and gave Michigan a close game this year. Um, and you know, from that rebuilding process, man, did, I think, you know, if you asked me and Mike, we would tell you the same thing. Like we, we got to learn everything from Eric as far as um, growing a program, building culture, uh, having ownership of a program, uh, the recruiting side of everything, uh, NCAA eligibility, man, there's a million different things you could go into. Um, but we were able to get that program up and running. And through that, after my fifth year, uh, again, you start looking for opportunities, right? Like you want to get to Hockey East, which is where we are now. And, and being an East Coast guy, uh, growing up watching BU and BC and them winning championships and Maine was winning championships when I was a kid and playing in the tournament. Um, that's a league I always wanted to get to. And Todd Woodcroft gets the, co the job here as head coach at Vermont. Um, and I didn't know Todd. Uh, I reached out to him uh, through a mutual friend in the NHL uh, CA um, and just said, hey, I'd be interested. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Um, we had an interview. I guess I did okay. Um, and, and Todd ended up bringing me on in Vermont. So um, we're in year, we're going into year three after year two, a rebuilt year. And the future is bright in Vermont as well. So you were talking about you had to rebuild this program that was basically nothing American International College so in those five six years that you were there though I know it's a broad question but I guess really in the back of your mind what was the biggest thing that you guys changed implemented as coaches as a locker room culture that ended up making it be the now successful program that it, it is well I think there's a lot of tiny little pieces uh, that go into making uh a program rise like that. Like I could easily say 
you know, it was the coaching staff, but there was a bunch of other stuff behind the scenes that helped too there with the administration giving uh, more funding and more backing, the institution getting behind the program um, and moving us to the Mass Mutual Center, um, which was a big time facility upgrade for us. Um, but I would say, you know, step one and square one was their hiring of Eric Lang. Um, that was um, obviously a home run hire for them and, the, and, a, and a great hire as he was an alum and an assistant coach there in the past and a captain at AIC. And what he brought with him from West Point um, and Brian Riley at West Point was this ability to build a winning culture. And I think what I learned from Eric in, the, in that setting, and, and it was, I think, a byproduct of, of Brian Riley or an extension of Brian Riley, the head coach of West Point, um, was a player-driven culture that is so strong, it was almost unbreakable. Um, and I would say that was the biggest difference from the year that I first got there to when Eric took over and that transition started to happen. Yes, did we go out and recruit uh, difference maker athletes? For sure. Did, did me and Mike get on the road a lot and find guys that could upgrade the talent? For sure. Um, was it a facility upgrade? For sure. Um, but I think Eric's um, you know, culture that he brought with him and built there, that was the, the difference maker. And, and his ability to have it be completely player-driven uh, player-driven culture or player-owned culture. Um, that was the difference in, in getting that thing going, right? That was step one for sure. So now you're at Vermont and uh, we'll take it right to the present day. I'm just going to ask some coaching questions to you. So in looking at future guests, we talked a little bit before uh, we did the show here today. Um, you know, we write down names, we hear from guests and so forth and so on. And one thing that was a, uh, attached to your name is the power play that you put together. Can you talk a little bit without giving away any trade secrets, so to speak, a little bit about um, the power kill setup that you use because uh, based on stats, it's been highly successful. Yeah. So I, I run the penalty kill uh, here um, and I ran the penalty kill at AIC um, and Oh, without giving away trade secrets, what is, well, while I was at AIC, um, I think, I think a little bit of it, you know, we were able to take a program that was so low and bring it to a powerhouse that it is now in college hockey. But also, um, I think along the way you get the stats rise with that too. So, um, you know, Mike was in charge of the power play when we were there. And then after him, Corey Schneider and that power play went through the roof. For them, the penalty kill did the same. Uh, my last year at AIC, we had gotten the fourth in the nation, uh, and I think an 89% penalty kill rating uh, overall, uh, which is obviously unbelievably high. Um, the thing that we did that kind of helped us get there was we got away from structure. Uh, not to say that we didn't have structure. You need structure on a penalty kill. Um, but every summer, and, and the same, and this is one of Todd Woodcroft's strengths, um, is our ability to keep evolving, um, not changing who we are, but evolving. And the summer is a great time for that. Um, so we're going through this right now at Vermont again, where we get with a, a ton of NHL coaches and we kind of just info share and um, share info, share ideas, uh, peg, borrow and steal and figure out new ways to help keep teaching. And one thing that I came up with uh, this summer, or we came up with in a meeting, uh, Eric, Mike, and I, uh, leading into that penalty kill that we went to fourth in the nation was, our guys understand the structure. It's not that they're not in the right place on the ice, but it's the little things, the little details that they're missing that are leading to goals against. So how do we teach the little details? So we got away from, Hey, you have to be in this spot and more to, Hey, here's where your stick has to go. Here's how your feet have to go. Here's when you go and pressure really hard. Here's when you back off. Here's, you know, what you have to do on a face off. Uh, where should you be lined up? Do you got to shade a couple feet this way to help this face off? Um, helping the centers through their face offs on penalty kills, right? All these little different details to the penalty kills. What we started 
preaching more than exactly where you stood on the ice and then building drills and practice that emphasizes those things that you need to have a successful penalty kill more than slow, boring walkthrough type penalty kills. Um, so that was, the, that was the way that we grew that um, and, and built that up. Yeah. And so uh, whenever you're developing the players there, right. I know that there's a staunch difference now in the, in the, in the generations and we hear, you know, discussions and things like this all the time, you know, when you have the Tortorellas on some teams and, and uh, the Pierre-Luge Dubois that maybe didn't like that style of coaching, how do you balance the style of coaching? I'm sure maybe you have your own type that you maybe you've been doing since you've been in the beginning, but uh, do you find it difficult sometimes to adjust to certain personalities or have you had pretty good luck? These are all good kids that um, have been very coachable. What's kind of been your experience, I guess, without calling anybody out? Yeah, I, everybody's unique. Um, I like to think that I have a great relationship with all of my players that, are, that I've ever coached. Uh, I'm sure that if you asked all of our players about me, maybe some of them don't think that, right? Um, but you have to work towards that. And, and we do here uh, 100%. Um, it's Todd's line. Uh, we work for the players. Like we're, we're a new age staff here. Um, the old days of just barking and barking and barking and a dictatorship. Um, that's not how we run things here at Vermont. Uh, we are, I guess you could say, uh, developmentally focused uh, in terms of making sure that we're investing in the person uh, on the Vermont hockey team. And by showing that we care and that we actually care about them as people, um, we'll be able to coach them harder because they know we're coming from a place that we genuinely care about them. So um, we manage those relationships every single day. And um, do some guys get more attention than others? Yes. Yeah, some players are very low maintenance players just by design, like the, based on their personalities and, and who they are as people. And some guys are more high maintenance. They're, they're confidence driven and you need to feed them more. Um, but the greatest thing that we have here is um, a wealth of knowledge in our head coach. He's, he's been in the NHL level for 20 years. There's not really a scenario that he hasn't seen. And his network uh, is so strong that, you know, as a byproduct, our networks as assistants. Now I work here with Scott Mosier and Drew Michaels or our other assistants. We have the ability to reach out to coaches that normally wouldn't be within our, our realm of connections. Right. Uh, so, Obviously, Todd's brother, Jay Woodcroft, is the head coach in Edmonton. Uh, one of Todd's longtime mentors is, is uh, Mike Babcock. He's really close with McClellan, uh, DeBoer. Um, the list goes on and on of guys um, that Todd is really tight with. And when we need uh, answers on something that maybe, you know, we need to get a second opinion on, we could reach out to that network. How did you do this with a player? How did you do this with a high confidence guy? How did you do this with a low confidence guy? Uh, what worked in the past? So, you know, Todd himself has so much knowledge on that after that long stretch in the NHL, but also the network that he brings with them. We're able to surround our guys with um, a ton of different opinions and avenues to make sure that they get the best development they can, uh, both mentally and, and on the ice. Talk to us a little bit about recruitment. Um, and it's sort of a two uh, multi-part uh, discussion here. So here's my questions. Um, what's sort of the recruitment plan? And I know that is different from each player, but a recruitment plan, do you like it? What's the best part of recruiting and what's the worst part of recruiting? I, I absolutely love recruiting. Um, yeah. So I think that was part of the, the big reason that, that I ended up getting this job was Todd was looking for somebody with a ton of experience in, in division one recruiting. Um, and to me, the thing that we do here that really works um, is recruiting to an identity. So we know exactly what we're looking for in a Vermont catamount. And we put value in places that maybe some other programs aren't putting value. Um, and I think that leads to us being able to get difference maker athletes for us uh, that can grow this program on day one when they step foot on campus. 
we sit as a staff and, and talk and work through what that identity is. And like I said, it evolves over time. You, you have to keep evolving. Uh, you can't stay still. But we literally have boxes that we fit our players into. So um, we're not just trying to accumulate talent. You need talent. And we have a ton of guys in the pipeline and guys that are on campus uh, that are NHL draft picks that are high talented players. And you'll see some watching the draft this, this summer. You'll see more Vermont Catamounts uh, getting drafted this summer. Um, we have a ton of talent, but at the same time, we need to get guys, we need to get the best fourth line left wing. We need to get the best sixth uh, right D-man. We need capable set backup goalie, uh, third string goalies, and they have to be to the right identity because those are the guys along with the talent that help you win championships, right? And I think you can make the mistake if you just keep trying to acquire talent, if you just keep trying to grasp at straws to upgrade your talent, you're not really building a program. What you're going to end up with is uh, some not skilled enough skill players. Um, and that's not a way to win championships. So we're building from the bottom up. We make investments in our, in our bottom six forwards the same way that we'll make investments in our top six forwards. We'll give guys scholarships um, that other schools aren't offering scholarships to because they bring a lot of wealth to our program. They fit our identity that we're looking for. Um, so I think that's what makes recruiting exciting for us. And, and you know, the other part is, is um, where what we inherited or where the program was when we got here. And again, trying to build that back up. We have a long history here at Vermont, uh, a storied uh, hockey history. And the program lost its way for a little while. And it's our job or our task to, to get that back up to prominence. And we want to be competing for national championships. We want to make guys like Marty St. Louis and Patrick Sharp and Tim Thomas uh, and, and all of our alums, John LeClaire, and you keep going down the line to guys like Ross Colton that are playing in the NHL right now. We want to make those guys proud. We want everybody proud of that logo. Um, and the way that you do that on day one is, is to – start recruiting that identity and bringing players in here that are going to have pride in that logo and, and uh, take ownership of this thing and rebuild it. How do you guys go about uh, scouting? And the reason why I asked that is I, number one, I don't know, but um, we have on um, our favorite guest, former NHL, Dave Capuano, whose brother Jack is, was with the uh, Islanders head coach for a long time. And they all came from Mount St. Charles, the Mount in uh, Rhode Island, when they had their, you know, hockey team for 30 years. And we asked them about like, how were they getting scouted and so forth? And did the coach, was the coach involved in that? And, and he said, no, the coach didn't care about uh, college recruiters. I don't know if that's the way with a lot of good high school uh, programs, but how do you go about scouting and are you working with any of the high school coaches or is it just you're kind of on your own to approach these guys when it's appropriate? Yeah, I think, well, there's a ton of NCAA rules, obviously, um, that, that revolve around the scouting. Um, so we, we can only have three guys on the road scouting. Um, so that's, Todd Woodcroft, our head coach, uh, Scott Mosier, and myself, the two assistants, are the only guys by NCAA rules allowed to be out and scouting the players. Um, the way that works is obviously you rely heavily on your network that you've built up over your coaching career, or, or for Todd, his, his uh, network that he grew uh, throughout Europe and, and North America while being in the NHL. But um, I think it's changed a little bit probably since you were talking to the Capuanos when they were getting recruited. Um, and Mount St. Charles has certainly continued to, to grow and is a, is a powerhouse uh, nationwide right now. But you are definitely in lockstep with the coaches uh, of the different clubs. So, uh, and, and that extends from obviously uh, high school level and, and U18 level and U16 level, uh, right through juniors, right? College, you know, hockey has uh, that little, um, unique step in junior hockey where you can play from when you're 17 to, to 20 years old um, that most players are doing a year or two after they graduate high school or playing junior hockey. So that's our job to manage those networks, especially as assistant coaches, um, manage those networks, 
make sure that you're keeping those relationships strong and hoping that you could get a tip here or there on the next guy that's coming through the program that you have to watch. And then it's a matter of having your own process. And I think every assistant coach has a different one, but our recruiting software that we have nowadays online is unbelievable. Um, we can pretty much type a name into the computer um, and pull up his stats since he was 13 years old. Um, wow. And then, and then also watch a, a ton of his, in some cases, all of his games from the current season, uh, depending on what program he's with to a few of his games online very easily just by typing his name into a database. Um, another, you know, another software that we have will give us uh, if he has an advisor or if he has, you know, what his parents' names are, his email, um, what is he looking for? What are his grades? All that kind of stuff. So between all that different software, you could build a realistic picture of who a player is and, and, and what he can do on the ice and what box he can fit in your recruiting picture. Um, but then you have to get out on the road and see these guys live and, and watch them. And you have to get into who the person is, right? I think that's the biggest part of scouting that pays the most dividends. You can really make a mistake if you don't do your homework, right? Um, it's a 24 seven job. It's never, it never turns off. Uh, you get a call at 11 o'clock at night. Uh, sometimes my wife wants to kill me, but I, I, I got to take the call um, because it just might be that next great player. So it's really evolved into a 24 seven job as far as recruiting and scouting goes. Uh, but we do have a ton of tools available to us that that probably coaches as of 10 years ago didn't have available to them uh, to help, you know, limit the guesswork. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a crazy process and experience. Um, it's confusing for the kids at sometimes, obviously, because nobody's path is the same. Um, but I think the biggest thing for everybody is having their own process that they work through as a coach and a scout and uh, identifying those players that fit perfectly for your program. We had on Mark Strobel, who's an associate uh, coach at uh, Wisconsin, yeah. and um, he talks a little bit about uh, now he's a more my age guy. So we'll say he's an old school guy. Uh, and he kind of I, and I understand NCA, NCAA rules with agents not getting involved or shouldn't be involved. But um, and again, if this is going somewhere that you don't want to talk about, feel free to step in and say, you know, hey, I. I'm not comfortable talking about that, but he did talk about that. There are agents that, um, that do get in the way, at least pump the kids up. You know, like Mark said, uh, you know, I've heard, you know, this kid's the next Wayne Gretzky a million times, you know, trying to, uh, you know, I guess advise the uh, parents or so forth since they can't do the negotiating yourself. What is, have you had guys had to deal with anything like that? And what does that do for the player? Cause I just assume another added of somebody saying you should be doing this. You should get this. Have you had any experiences with that? Yeah, I think so. Advisors are, are, are here to stay and they're a part of the recruiting world and the scouting world in college hockey. Uh, and they're not going anywhere. Um, and that, that, that has really changed over the last, uh, you know, six or seven years. Uh, I think when I started out now, part of that's probably being in D3 when I started out, not a lot of those players had advisors. Um, but as I moved into D1 and certainly as, as I've grown through D1, the advisor advisory role has become big. And um, my advice for any players, I think advisors are just like coaches. They're just like, uh, you know, professors. They're just like, um, any other part of your experience uh, as, a, as an athlete is there's good ones and there's bad ones. Um, and I think us as recruiters, like I said, it's 24 seven job. So Scott and I are getting calls at all times from different advisors or coaches or uh, just people that we have mutual relationships with about players. It, it, it's nonstop. And there's advisors that we trust and we know and, and are in lockstep with that they can, uh, we could trust what they say. Um, we're never going to take a kid solely on an advisor's word. Um, that's not what we're about. Um, but it is part of the recruiting world that we have to manage those relationships and converse with these guys. And a lot of times they do help. Um, so it's a matter of that. 
players have to make sure that they find the right fit for an advisor, just like they find the right fit uh, for a coach. They don't absolutely need an advisor, um, but obviously the world is kind of moved towards that, that way um, or that method right now. So um, yeah, there's advisors that we have tons of conversations with ones that we trust and know um, that we work with every day. There's big corporations, there's smaller uh, family run or single run uh, advisory groups. Um, so it's just about for that player, finding the right fit for who's going to help them um, down their path to finding a college hockey home. Yeah. And so uh, before we start to wrap it up though, moving on from the university of Vermont, you did sneakily see our uh, coach as an assistant coach, I believe for the uh, international team, the Norway under 20 team. Um, so how on earth did you get hooked up with that? Why? Norway how was traveling Norway I'm sure hopefully your wife was able to come she may have not liked that one either but uh kind of <laughs> give us a scoop on that and everything because uh yeah I'm curious yeah um so without going too sideways or in, in the weeds on it um so I previously held the staff as vice president of the American Coaches Association Hockey Association so uh, with my position at the HCA, I was in charge of um, booking the speakers for the national, for our convention, all of <clears throat> NCAA coaches go down to Florida every year. Um, and we have guest speakers come in and we, and we do some networking opportunities and um, professional development and this and that. Um, so I ended up uh, through Todd booking uh, Tobias Johansson to come down and talk for the convention for the national convention. Uh, Todd and Tobias go way back to his, uh, Todd's time in Europe. Um, and Tobias was originally um, with the Frölunda team in Sweden. And uh, I don't know how much you guys know about Swedish uh, hockey or development, but Frölunda uh, is one of the biggest or the best. Uh, they would be considered like the Yankees of Swedish hockey. Um, and they have a tiered development system. Uh, so in the recruiting world, you want to try to get some Frolunda players uh, or at least know who they are. And Tobias was running that program. So um, I got him to speak at the convention. Tobias, after the convention uh, or, or kind of during it, ended up taking a job with Team Norway. He's in charge of all of their, the whole nation, the federation, uh, all of their development from U20 down. Um, so he's the director of hockey for, for the Norway Federation. Um, he was putting his staff together as part of his job for that director role. He's the head coach of the U20 team. So when he was putting his staff together, um, you know, we had stayed in touch over, over time uh, since the convention. And Todd had mentioned to him, hey, I think Steve would be interested in some international experience. Um, you, should, you guys should connect on if you need an assistant coach to run the penalty kill and defenseman. Uh, so once Tobias re reached out to me, I, I was all for it. Um, and kind of that, that quickly, I ended up being on the staff in Norway, um, had to go over to Denmark, uh, for right around 16 days, uh, just before Christmas. Uh, I got back in time for Christmas. So my wife was pumped. Uh, she didn't come with me. She stayed at home. Uh, she was actually pregnant, uh, with our second kid and we have a two and a half year old. So she kind of had to manage that. I don't know if she was thrilled about that while I was gone. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was an unbelievable experience uh, getting to learn, um, obviously, a new way of hockey, right? Like the Norwegians play hockey differently than the Swedes and different than U.S. and Canada. So I was exposed to that. I was exposed to a new coaching style uh, that Toby had uh, running that program. Um, so it was great from a development standpoint for myself, coaching-wise. But then the, the byproduct that was great for Vermont is getting to watch all these different players in that tournament. And we have players from Latvia and Sweden and, and uh, you know, we're recruiting some Norwegians now, um, getting to watch them play live, getting to coach them, learning about them, learning about their culture, being over there and immersed in it. Uh, that was a byproduct for us and, and our other, our other assistant coaches for team Slovakia and the world junior. So, uh, and then Todd coaches for Sweden. So we kind of have Sweden, Norway and Slovakia all amongst our staff and, wow. um, we're hoping that it'll lead to some difference maker players for, for the University of Vermont. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we run out of time, we usually end with some lightning round questions. This is just to kind of put you on the spot and uh, you can uh, tell a story or just name a name or whatever that it is. Usually, you know, it's um, you, we're putting ourselves on the spot because Andrew and I, I kind of got to reverse this. Usually we ask questions about like, who's the toughest goalie you ever played against, uh, you know, things like that. But now we got to try to do it coaching wise. So I'm going to lead this off. Um, what is the shittiest job that you've had to do as an assistant coach? <laughs> the shittiest job I've had to do. Not saying you weren't grateful. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, I mean, there's a lot, obviously there's a lot that you, you have to do because you're wearing a bunch of different hats that you don't love. Um, I think the toughest and, and you don't have to do it as an assistant coach. Um, you know, I, I guess it's twofold. The toughest thing to be a part of is when uh, the program program moves on from somebody uh, or a player has to be kind of think back to Curry uh, when that first happened and TJ had to uh, move on from a player and just being in that room and, and, and being a part of that is a, is a horrible uh, experience, one that you don't want to be a part of. As an assistant, I think, you know, one of the toughest jobs is actually uh, talking to players um, after they get out of their meeting with the head coach if they're not playing in the lineup, right? Um, that is a tough scenario, uh, one that anybody that played college hockey probably has had experience with as a player, so you can put yourself back in those shoes of being a 18 to 23 year old, 24 year old, and being told that you're not going to play that weekend. Um, it's a, it's a, it's not a scenario that anybody wants to be in. That's the worst one, the worst conversation that you have to have with somebody on a weekly basis. Uh, I, so I take it. I, I take it. You're uh, you're the good coach, not the bad coach. Well, the head coach has to tell the guys that they're not playing. Right. So we don't usually have to deliver, deliver that actual verdict. Uh, we then have to have the, the follow-up conversation uh, because we have to make sure that they're still getting their work done and, and giving them the opportunity or, or the tools to get back in the lineup, right? And make sure that we're working towards that um, on a daily basis. So sometimes those practices where you're trying to get them back into the lineup are happening 10 minutes after they just had the conversation with the head coach that they're not playing. So um, that's usually a unique and, and tough situation. So just kind of a different question, because we haven't done too many, <coughs> excuse me, lightning round coaching questions, but watching the NHL team, seeing how maybe some of their systems run, especially as a coach, instead of us being the couch potatoes that we are and see the game, what team, if they called you tomorrow, would you want to take a job from? What matches most stylistically, things like that? What would be the one NHL team you, you'd like to take the call from tomorrow? Uh, I, I don't think I would be in a position to, to really uh, say, no, I'm not coming to your NHL team. Uh, so, so any of them are called. Uh, yeah. Would be going for a conversation. Um, but obviously what Jay Woodcroft has done in Edmonton, uh, you know, Todd's, Todd's brother um, has been unbelievable. We're close with that staff, obviously. Uh, they're, they're pretty much family to us. Um so excited for Jay. He just got a contract extension, and, and that's great to watch him uh, as he starts his head coaching career in, in the NHL. That's been awesome to watch. And uh, obviously, him and Todd are working together a ton. Um, so um, that's been like a, a little like uh, family extension of our coaching tree. Um, and obviously, Todd's, Todd's real family. Uh, so that would be a great one to stay within the family. From your playing or coaching career, what is the Worst locker room you've ever been in? Where was it? Playing or coaching career? Now, in the locker room, is in it was a toxic locker room, or no? It... Me, me, meaning like you're out in the hallway, the oh. the the water shut off. Yeah, oof. There's a lot of bad ones. Um, you know what? I can't remember the building, but there's one in the SP that the visiting locker room is is. Oh man, it's like uh, you know the auditorium's really old. Man, what building is that in? You know where it was? It was in Biloxi, Mississippi. The team doesn't exist anymore. That was a tough, tough locker room visiting locker room on the road. Uh, the old Mississippi Surge. Um, 
there wasn't much to it. It, it didn't really feel like you were playing professional hockey uh, <laughs> at that point. So I would say that one. Okay. So as an assistant coach, have you ever had to, uh, I don't know, have you ever had to get into an altercation with the ref, had an argument with them? You know, we've heard some things with head coaches before. Sometimes even if uh, they're not the ones to, to yell and argue with a certain call that sometimes um, at the professional level, I know that um, sometimes they have to do it to kind of show um, emotion or something, right? But have you ever had an experience like that? Did you ever have to, even after a game, pull a ref aside and go, hey, what the hell was that? Anything like that? You know, never, never, never after a game, really. Um, it's been a bunch of different, unique, you know, uh, I guess scenarios. Uh, D3 is very different than D1. And even, um, you know, the way that Todd handles the refs uh, versus how Eric did versus how TJ did, it's, it's all different. I think as an assistant coach, your best bet's to kind of keep your mouth shut on the bench um, and let the head coach deal with the refs, right? And um, have I probably barked out a time or two uh, running the penalty kill where I was upset that we got a call? Uh, yeah, I, I probably have. Um, have I ever gotten into a big altercation with one? No, um, that's really not uh, assistant coach's role. Um, Todd has that managed down to a science almost where um, he's using that for it can be to motivate our own players. It could be to stick up for our players. It could be um, if the refs really are, are doing a poor job and he, and he wants to let them know. Um, so I kind of just sit in the background and, and let him work on that one. And sometimes the lines that come out are pretty funny and me and Scott get to look at each other and, and chuckle <laughs> about it. Uh, but that's, that's really that. I'm not, I'm not barking at those guys. I got, I got enough to worry about. Last question. And of course you're, you're really just getting into your, your coaching career here. So thus far, um, what's one or, two, or maybe the top, one of the top two or three things that you're most proud of as an achievement, as a coach thus far? Um, I would say the thing that I'm, and it's, it's just starting, but the, one of the things that I'm most proud of is the relationships that I've been able to build with the players. Um, and you kind of know that you're doing a good job in that, in that realm when you start getting invited to weddings. Right. Uh, so, so having former players uh, inviting me to their weddings, um, that is such a cool experience because at the end of the day, when you're a player, like you think back to your playing career, you remember coaches that helped you along the way and how influential you, you, they were in your life. And you hope that you could do that for somebody else. Um, and to know that you made a big enough impact that you're going to be a part of, not in their wedding, but a part of the biggest day of their life um, is a pretty rewarding one. So uh, on a personal level, I think that's, that's been one that's stuck with me um, from a professional level. Um, you know, that unique experience of, of winning a championship at AIC when, when nobody thought we could do it, that was, that was a big one. Um, you know, just, um, the guy, the guy, the first class that came through there of players, they were really sold on a dream. Um, and they bought in and took ownership of it and ran with it and they won the championship. But when you, when you first won that championship, when you get to see them celebrate, you know, I'll never forget Blake Christensen turning around and screaming, we did it. And like, kind of like punching me in the chest. Um, and, and then going over the boards and selling with everybody. That's one of those moments that's like so rewarding because um, obviously everybody did it together. The players did it more than anybody else. They win the hockey games. But to see that look, that, that reward for them, that they came in, there was no promise of it happening. They knew they had to be the first ones through the wall that were going to get bloody. Um, and they were able to elevate the program to that. And um, once you have that once, you're addicted to it. And I can't wait to have the guys um, at UVM that bought in with us, that are here with Todd, Scott, and I, um, that bought into this vision and this dream when we win a Hockey East championship 
and they turn around and look at us and, and we're all selling in that picture. I'm addicted to that feeling. I can't wait for it to happen again. And I know this program's going there. Um, so I, I want to replicate that as many times as I can in my coaching career. Man, that's a great way to, to end this. So yeah, Steve, we can't thank you enough. We'll say goodbye off air, but officially Andrew and I, this has been great. Hopefully you had a good time and uh, we thank you so much for coming on. No, I really appreciate you guys having me. I'm happy to be on and, and this was great. Hoping to do it again one day. Awesome. Thanks, man. We appreciate you. All right, Andrew, great guy. Uh, he's got a heck of a coaching career ahead of him. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Great guy, too. You know, it's always nice to have uh, these guests on that are so insightful. That's time to answer those questions and and to, you know, give us a real, real insight. And especially that it's also cool that we get NCAA guys on here. Um, D1, D3, it doesn't really matter what they coached or played, but it's always interesting to dive into that because um, although you followed it more when you were a younger dad and going to college at UMass Lowell, you know, we're not huge uh, NCAA hockey fans. So that's something that we've been trying to get into. So it's always cool to hear the recruiting process and uh, everything else. Yeah, and it has changed, uh, you know, uh, talking with with some you know, other college coaches, their whole system of, of recruiting and, and maintaining players is, has really changed over the years. So uh, an enjoyable episode. So we've got a bunch of guests coming up, Andrew. Uh, we talked a little bit about them last uh, episode, so we don't have to go over it, but uh, we want to wish everybody uh, the best and thank you for listening. We're back to uh, getting even more guests on here in the upcoming weeks to keep uh, hockey alive during the summer. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're stoked for our guests coming up. We've been working hard, piecing things together, uh, but we do apologize if we were a week late. Um, it's funny, Dad, uh, behind the scenes stuff on our podcast real quick. We did record an episode Sunday, but of course, uh, because school is not in session for you, um, we're not at our typical um, office and because uh, we are still trying it at, at your place. And of course, with my phone, because my computer's not working with Zoom anymore and all these things, um, we actually record a whole episode and it did not sound great. So it's just nice that we're able to finally get something out again to our fans. Absolutely. So we want to thank everybody. Wish everybody well. Uh, lots going on as far as uh, trades, um, all the way from uh, the European, UK hockey to uh, ECHL and obviously NHL and a lot of coaching changes being made as well. So we uh, will try to cover a lot of that during the summer in between our guests as well. We want to thank everybody and wish everybody a great weekend.